does clearly say that we are made up of both immaterial and material. We are physical and spiritual. Uh, but nonetheless, we have to recognize that the Scripture describes for us that God is a spirit, that he is fully and completely spirit, that he is no, there is no physicality to him. I know the Scriptures will describe God as having eyes. In fact, we're going to look at one of those verses here in a few moments. Um, of God having a strong right hand, as hand, right hand, right hand, um, as God having um, feet to walk and and uh, were a mouth to speak and ears to hear, and all those things are um, the Scripture using um, metaphorical language to describe how who God is. But we have to recognize that God is fully a spirit, and I think one of the best examples of this is the interaction He has with Moses. You know, Moses says, "Show me your glory." And God says, no one can see my glory and live. There's a a fundamental understanding that that plane upon which God exists and the glory at which he has is incompatible with human life. That's the actual idea that God is getting across there. And so what he does is he's gracious to Moses. He walks by him. He shields his eyes and just gives him a glimpse of that glory. And of course, as a result of that, Moses is physically changed. His face shines as it reflects the glory that he saw. So God is different in the very nature in which he is made. We are material. He is immaterial. We are physical. He is all spirit. Or the second thing, and I think something we don't think a lot about, is the fact that God is eternal. God is not bound by time. God is not constrained by time. Uh, God is not in time. He exists outside of time. And so uh, the, the knowability of God is going to be limited from that very perspective, that because he is eternal, he does not relate to time in the same way that we do. Um, you know, I think oftentimes maybe we'll think to ourselves that, boy, I can't understand the idea that I'm going to live forever that you know, I'm going to have eternal life or that I possess eternal life that will continue forever, uh, that there'll be no end to my being if I'm in Christ. And so that, that's hard for us to, to, keep, to, keep, to understand and to wrap our minds around because we're so used to things coming to an end, all right? You, you know, you go and your favorite television show, it comes to an end, your, your favorite sports team, their, their seasons come to an end. Um, you, you think, you know, even though sometimes you maybe feel like my sermons are going on for an eternity, they do eventually come to an end. Um, there is a reality that the things in our lives come to an end. And, and the, it's most clearly seen in the fact that we all have experienced loved ones who have died, who have gone on, and, and their lives came to an end. God has no end. There is no sense in which he will cease to be or cease to exist. He is completely eternal. But even beyond that, not only does he not have an end, the thing that really uh, fries my brain pan is the fact that he has no beginning. And I think we sort of relate even more to the idea of beginning because we all have, you know, every year, what do we celebrate? Our birthday, the day that we came into the world. Um, the way the day that we were born, and we look at that as the beginning, and and everything is sort of structured around this idea of a beginning. God has no beginning. There was no time where He was not. There was no time where He came into existence, or there was no time where He was born. He has always been, and in fact, the very way in which we relate to life 
is a result of God creating time and space. So that the idea of starting and ending, the idea of these things going on and, and forever or never having a beginning, those things are foreign to us because of the different plane upon which God lives. So again, we see that difference in nature. And as a result of God being a purely spiritual being and God being an eternal being, there are going to be things about him that we are incapable of understanding because we are physical beings and because we are tied to time. And as a result of that, there's going to be a gap or a, a hole in our understanding of who God is because he exists on another plane. But secondly, besides the difference that we have with God in his nature, we also have a difference with him in the fact that he is creator and we are creature. There is this creator-creature distinction. As the creator, our existence is initiated by him. So if you just step back and think about this from the very basic idea, the only reason you ever have any idea that God even exists is because you were created by him. If he didn't create you, you obviously would have no knowledge of him. And so our basic knowledge of everything, not just of who God is, but our basic knowledge of everything in this universe is a result of his action in creating us, which means then that any knowledge we have of him as a creator must be initiated by him. We cannot, because of these differences, we cannot find God on our own. Left to ourselves, we would never find him on our own because he exists on this completely different plane. Now, thirdly, the scriptures bear out this idea that God is incomprehensible. And there's um, several different passages I want us to look at this evening. Now, the first one I think is important for us to keep in mind because it's hard for us to get away from this problem. In Psalm 50, 21, God is rebuking um, Israel. The psalmist is rebuking Israel because they've been rebellious. They've done sinful things. And what, what, they, what he remarks is, these things you have done and I have been silent. And then he says, you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Now, the main point the psalmist is making here is that God is not like us in regards to sinful actions. He does not act in the same way that we do. And particularly, it has to do with the words of our mouth. If you look at this psalm, he is condemning those who slander and those who lie and those who speak falsely and harshly against others. But the principle here still stands that we often conceive of God as though he were like us. And that presents a problem at the very basic understanding of how we know him. He is not like us. He is wholly other, wholly different, wholly apart from us. And that becomes extremely important in understanding how we can know him, how we can comprehend him. Because we are limited in our ability to know only the things really that we have experienced, right? You know, I, I can, I can, uh, I can imagine what it would be like to be on the moon. All right, 
I think it'd be pretty cool. You know, go up there and do some, do some uh, golf ball driving like the astronauts did and knocking the balls out into the universe or whatever. Um, it would be cool to sort of bounce over and have no gravity and things like that. I can have an idea of what that's like. But because I haven't experienced it, I have truly don't have a full understanding or comprehension of what it's like. The same thing is true about God. I cannot relate to him because his experience of existence is completely different than my experience of existence. And it is wrong for me to think that he experiences this universe in the same way that I experience this universe. It's wrong for us to think that he is one like ourselves. Now, now, that's very sort of ethereal and out there and a philosophical idea. And the psalmist brings it down and he says, don't think that you can live a life of sin and then God's just going to overlook it like he's one of you. That's the point he's making. Um, but nonetheless, the principle stands about the incomprehensibility of God. Again, in the Psalms, we see the psalmist writing, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is un." searchable. The idea here of God's greatness or God's being, who he is being unsearchable, refers to something that cannot be searched out or something that cannot be known. That there are things about God that are going to be fully and completely beyond our comprehension. We see Job remarking about this in Job chapter 9. And it's interesting to note that Job chooses here the things that are probably the most foreign to Job. Um, notice what he says. He says, uh, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out? And marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. I think what's amazing here is that Job, who is living, Job, we believe, is probably the oldest book in the Bible. Um, Job probably lived around the time of Abraham, maybe even a little bit before Abraham. Job was not able to have all the, uh, all the fancy scientific advancements that we have today we are able to reach out and we're and what's interesting is like during job's time you look up and you would have only seen orion all right you would have only seen that that constellation in the sky and you would have just seen these stars now we have imaging technology where we can reach in and we can see multitudes of wonders even greater than what we see just by looking up in the sky and seeing the stars and yet Job, at that point, he recognized that that greatness, which he cannot understand, was placed there by God. And that's why he goes on and says he does great things beyond searching out. Marvelous things beyond number. And then it's really interesting to, again, note that God passes by him. And what does Job not see? He doesn't see him. He moves on but he does not perceive him. Job here is again pointing to that fact that we just talked about, that God exists 
on a completely different plane, that he has a completely different nature than us. God is working, and we do not even perceive him. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. And again, what God does here through Isaiah is make the comparison and say, stop thinking that I'm like you. Why? My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And again, this, this is a constant problem with humanity as we keep coming back to this idea that we think God is like us. We need to stop that. God thinks at a completely different level than we think. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, this fundamental difference in who God is and who we are means that there are going to be things, that there are going to be parts of him that we cannot fully comprehend or understand. He is truly incomprehensible. And then Paul in the book of Romans makes this statement. As he has just described in glorious detail God's plan for his people Israel, that God has not, even though he's working with the Gentiles through the church at this particular time, there will be a day where all of Israel, a full inclusion will come, and God will, God will bring about the redemption of mankind both through his current time in where he is turning away from Israel and striking them to jealousy by his dealings with the Gentiles, and when that other day comes where he does fully restore the kingdom to Israel. And so those two things, which seem contradictory, God is actually working to accomplish redemption. And so Paul steps back in Romans 11, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. And after Paul has, and again, if you would think anybody would know God well, would it not be the Apostle Paul? And notice what he says, How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be pay, pay, repaid? For from him and through him and to him are how many things? All things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is... Especially important to note that, that what Paul does at the end of this, in verse 36, is he takes the entire universe, everything that exists, both spiritual and physical. Because remember, the spiritual world was created by God. So there is even a sense in which God is on a different plane than the spiritual world, than the angels and, and what we call the demons and the fallen angels and, and uh, the cherubim, the seraphim. I mean, all of those, those are created beings as well. Everything that exists, exists and comes through him and is given for him. And that's the reality of how different he truly is. And so we see that there's a very clear statement in Scripture through these several passages. There are more that we could go on with that describe the fact that God is incomprehensible. Now, we, when we say that God is incomprehensible, what are we not saying? Um, there was a movement uh, in the early or the late um, 
the late, I always get this wrong, late 19th century, early 20th century, and through the mid-20th century, that really focused on this idea of the incomprehensibility of God. So much so that they said that nothing, um, nothing concrete could ever be known about God. It was a, it was a movement called neo-orthodoxy. And so what they did is because nothing concrete or nothing, um, nothing objectively stated, nothing propositional could be known about God. As a result of that, then they pulled back and they said that the knowledge of God then has to be intensely personal. And so that one person's idea of God can be different than another person's idea of God. And, and what it ended up doing is they elevated the idea of the incomprehensibility of God to a point that Scripture does not. Essentially saying that we can't know anything for sure about God. That is not what the Bible teaches. When we speak of the incomprehensibility of God, we are not saying that nothing can be known about God. What we are saying is that nothing can be completely or exhaustively known about God. Um, and this applies to every aspect of who God is. So, for instance, um, the Bible, as we looked at just recently through all these questions that we went through, the Bible clearly tells us that God is good, right? We can, we can know that God is good, right? We understand that, and that's a truth revealed to us from Scripture. However, can we fully know the goodness of God? And what I mean by that is can we search out every aspect of His goodness? And the answer to that is no. It's impossible for us to know the depth of that goodness, God is good in ways that we can't comprehend or understand. God's goodness exists in ways that we can't fully wrap our minds around or understand. And this, reply, this applies to every single aspect of his attributes. We, can never, we know that he is a powerful God, but we can never fully know how powerful he is. We know that God is a, um, a loving God, but we can never truly fully know the depths of of that love, or his mercy, or his grace. So that essentially, because God is on an entirely different plane than we are, what we can know something about him, but we can't know all about him. And even the things that we know about him, we don't know them completely or exhaustively. Now we also have to be careful that this idea that we know some of God, but not all of God, that we don't fall into the idea that, that, the, that what we do know of God only provides an illusion of knowledge. Um, there's an argument, that, it's an argument that some philosophers have made that, well, while we do know certain things about God, it's because it's not comprehensive knowledge, then we truly don't know him, and it's an illusion. And what we have to understand when we talk about the incomprehensibility of God is that what we know about God is true. So what we know to be true about God is true. It's just not exhaustive. It's just not comprehensive. So understanding all of that, how should we respond to our incomprehensible God? Uh, how, how should we approach this idea? There are different ways that People have looked at this. Some of them, like I mentioned before, the neo-Orthodox teachers sort of took the approach, 
well, because I can't know everything about God, then I guess I can't know anything about God. And so they almost makes it like it's a folly to try to know anything about him. Um, that's not the right response. It's also not the right response for us to get to a point where we feel like we have God figured out. That's where we fall into that danger of thinking that God is like us. So how should we respond to our incomprehensibility of God? Well, again, we need to remember what the incomprehensibility of God does not mean. As we mentioned, it does not mean we can't know anything about God. It's just that we can only know some things about God. Secondly, and this I find really helpful, realize that God desires to be known. This is really remarkable in the fact that we have a God who is unknowable in one respect, but yet a God who desires to be known. There's a couple of passages I want us to, to look at here. First of all, Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, Let the, the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his rich and riches, but let him who boasts, boasts in this. And then notice what is the focus of our boasting. That he understands and what? Knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Knowledge of God must be the greatest desire of his people, and it is his greatest desire for us. He delights in us knowing who he is. And so really, again, what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 3 is expressed here in Jeremiah. The very thing that we boast in, the very thing that brings us joy, is the fact that we can know God. Again, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, 10 through 11. He desires that he may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul's great purpose in life was knowing the unknowable God. Now, God would not inspire through the Holy Spirit Paul to write those words if it was not also God's desire for us to have that same goal in mind. God would also not place a goal before us that he would not enable us to know. And so while God is fully unknowable, he still can be known. I think it's also interesting to see how Paul views death. Um, he speaks of how he wants to become like Christ in his death so that even through the means of death, he may attain the resurrection from the dead. And, and I think but Paul's hinting at a lot of things and pointing to a lot of things here, but I think he's even hinting that we are able to enter to a small degree, not to an equivalent degree, but to a small degree, the eternal plane God exists on. Why do we live eternally? Why is our life never ending? Why is it everlasting life? Because it's allowing us, and we'll see this in just a few moments, it's allowing us to pursue the eternal knowledge of God. 
So that is the great joy of the believer's life. But I think the final indication that God desires for his people to know him is seen in what we call the new covenant. God makes a new covenant with his people. And and the writer of Hebrews quotes this here. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then this is what's interesting. He says, And they shall not teach each other one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Now, now, what's interesting here is what he's saying is the knowledge of God is not going to come through or primarily through rote instruction. But rather, notice what he says the new covenant gives. For they shall all what? Know me. From the least of them to the greatest. God desires to be known, and that new covenant shows that his desire is to bring that about through his work of redemption. God wants us to know him. Even though he is on a plane beyond us, even though he is incomprehensible, he wants us to still know him. So how does he intend for us to know him? And that is why we have to as we respond to this incomprehensibility, knowing that God wants us to know Him, we have to seek the means by which He has provided for us to know Him, and that is through what we call revelation. God reveals Himself to us. Um, you, know, you talk about what the, the big reveal, right? Um, you know, these things that, that you were shrouded, maybe behind a curtain, and you weren't able to see them. And then, like on some game show, like, you know, this is what you want. And they open it up, and it's this big reveal of this thing that wasn't known before, but now is. That's what we mean when we talk about revelation. God shows us what we would not know apart from Him showing it to us. That's what we mean through revel- what we mean revelation is. So there are three primary means by which God reveals Himself to us. So that we can know him. The first is nature. God reveals himself through nature. Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it or revealed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We can clearly see that there is a natural theology that this world provides for us. It is able to show us things about who God is. In fact, Paul in Acts chapter 14 takes this up as well. He says, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Speaking of the fact that he didn't give the law to every nation. He just gave it to Israel. But he says this, Yet... He did not leave himself without witness. Well, what were those witnesses? He did good. So notice what, notice what Paul is able to do. He's able to, to pull out from, from natural revelation the re- idea that God is good. And how is that good shown? By giving rains from heaven, 
fruitful seasons, and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know, I've, I've often wondered how those who do not know the Lord are able to truly experience joy. And they certainly are not able to experience the same joy that the joy of the Lord brings. But notice here what Paul is saying, that these nations that didn't know God, they're still able to have their hearts satisfied with food and with gladness. So anytime an unbeliever enjoys something, that is actually an evidence that God exists to them. Where does that gladness come from? Where does that delight come from? It is the goodness of God shown not through Scripture, but just in general, what we have in this world. So, and that should mean for us as well today, we can know God through nature. This is, I think, a, um, a somewhat neglected uh, realm of Christian uh, experience and Christian practice. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go out and hug a tree or, you know, it, but, but, but I think what we can do is we can enjoy the blessings of what God has given us. You know what? There's nothing wrong with enjoying a beautiful sunset, a beautiful sunrise. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things that God has given us that delight us. We can know things about God as we enjoy this world to which he's given us. We can know him and his goodness. We can know him and his righteousness. We can know him and his plan for all things, his organization, his orderliness. There's so many things we can see about God. We can know that God is not a nonsensical God, but that he acts in accordance with reason and logic. I mean, all of these things are clearly evidences of his existence. We can know these things as we look at the world around us. But that knowledge is not enough to have a relationship with God. If we were to think of it from one sense, looking out and knowing God simply through nature and revelation would be like reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln. All right? Yeah, I've read a couple biographies of Abraham Lincoln. Very exciting stuff. Really interesting to look at this president who who led this country through a very tumultuous time in our, in our country's history. But would it be better for me to know Abraham Lincoln through a book or to know Abraham Lincoln by sitting down and talking with him? Now, not that I have any plans to sit down and talk with Abraham Lincoln today. That's not going to happen. But nonetheless, you see the difference in the, the level of knowledge. And so the second way that God makes himself known to us is through Scripture. Scripture becomes the means, the primary means by which God makes himself known. We um, just saw in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, that God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. His actions are not like ours. His ways are not like our ways. And so he makes this statement in Isaiah 55 that he is completely different than us. But then notice what he says in the next verses. That was verses 8 and 9, verses 10 and 11. Notice what he says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my, what? 
word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God says, you're not going to know my ways. You're not going to know my paths. You're not going to know my thoughts. But what you can know about me is given through the word, which I determine will always accomplish what I call it and send it to do. We see that again in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God chose to speak through the written word of the prophets, and then we know elsewhere in the New Testament through the writings of the apostles, so that we can know him. So while we can know God through nature, we are able to have a more comprehensive, not a, not a fully comprehensive, but a more fuller picture, a more intimate picture of God through Scripture. I said there are three ways to know him, nature and Scripture, but the final way is really the end goal of Scripture, and that is through Christ. We can know God, and we truly can only have knowledge of God through Christ Jesus. Think about what it means when John says the Word became flesh. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word, the Son of God, existed eternally on the same plane as God because He is God. And for us to know this God, what did God do? He came down into the plane upon which we exist so that we can know Him. He enters our existence so that we can know Him. Again, Hebrews 1, God spoke in the prophets, but He says, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. And notice what He says about Christ, His Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ possesses the full nature of God. And yet Christ came in the flesh and took upon him a full nature of man. So that again, through another mind-numbing, twisting thing, one man took on two natures, divine and human, for the sake of letting the human be able to know the divine. That is what Christ does. In fact, John points this out in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right, who is at the Father's side. What has he done? He has made him what? Known. Christ is the only one who is able to make known the Father. In John 10, 14, and I realize I have the wrong, um, the wrong verse up here. This is from John 17, which we're going to get to in a second. <clears throat> but John 10, 14, Jesus 
talking to his disciples, says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Christ as the good shepherd is able to provide that knowledge. We know John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip, good name for a disciple, my name as well. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus, like, he probably just, did you not listen to what I just said? He said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me? Notice, notice how he switches that. Philip says, I want to know the Father. And Jesus' response is, haven't you known me? In other words, knowing me brings knowledge of the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And Jesus says in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And at the end of this prayer, he says in John 17, 26, I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So we must know God through the means through which he has revealed himself. And that is through nature, that is through scripture, and it is particularly through scripture pointing us to who Christ is so that Christ can make the Father known. Which then shows us that knowing God must be the great joy of our lives. And this is where this great ethereal concept of, of an incomprehensible God now becomes a life-altering principle. Again, what does Paul say in Philippians chapter 3? I count everything as loss because I can have something far more valuable, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul has as the great heartbeat of his life, knowing Jesus. And so knowing God, it must be the great joy of our lives. Think of it. Think of it. This God who exists on an entirely different plane from you. This God who spoke everything into existence. This God, and we've just been talking about the very basic viewpoint. We haven't even talked about the fact that our knowledge of God is also limited by our sin. This God overcomes all of those things through Christ so that we can know him. So let me ask you, what is the most important thing that you seek to know in your life? And if we're honest, it's so often taken up with lesser things. We would be upset if we lost our comforts, our conveniences, our entertainment choices. And yet we don't mind it when a service gets canceled or we're not able to spend time in God's word. 
We need to have truly as the great joy of our life, knowing God through Christ. And then the final thing is that there are going to be gaps in our knowledge of God. How do we respond when we don't understand? Some of those things that we talked about earlier, the, what we call the problem of evil. How can evil exist if God is good and powerful? How does divine sovereignty align with human responsibility? These aspects of God's incomprehensibility that we can't wrap our mind around, oftentimes those unanswered questions can lead us to begin to question and to begin to doubt. And the scriptures call us that when that happens, we have to repent and believe. I think it's interesting if you look at the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, Job sort of gets tired of the situation that he's in. He doesn't understand why God is allowing these things to happen to him. And so he says, I will question God. I would stand before him and plead my case. And it's interesting how God... And remember, Job has experienced immense suffering. God doesn't come to him and say, there, there, I understand. God appears to him out of a tornado and tells him, gird up your loins, acquit yourself like a man, stand there and be prepared. You would question me. And then you know what God does? Let me show you how different I am than you. Let me show you the things I, you don't know about me. And Job's response in that is he repents. He is ashamed that he would rise up and think that God would be like him. And then God doesn't just expect us or leave us to, to have that sort of harsh idea with him, but he also calls us to recognize that he's a faithful God, he's a good God, and so he's a God that we can trust even when we don't put it all together. Habakkuk makes this point at the end of his prophecy. Though the fig tree should not blossom, no fruit be on the vines. The produce of the oil fail and the fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Essentially for an agricultural society, he is describing the very essence of the end of society. And what's amazing to note here is what is his response? He doesn't allow the difficulties he's facing or that Israel is facing to turn him away from the Lord, but rather he faithfully turns back to him and says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That should be our response when we have gaps in our knowledge with God. Repenting of our of our audacity that we think God should answer to us or that he's like us, and then trusting him even when we don't see what he's doing, even when we don't understand his plan, knowing that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and he is always good. I praise the Lord that our God is an incomprehensible God. And that we can rest in that truth, knowing that he always does good for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this wonderful truth of your greatness that goes far beyond our comprehension. Father, may we truly 
rest in what your scripture teaches of who you are. May we rest in the realities that you are beyond us. And Father, may we seek to know you as you want to be known by your creation. May we seek to know you in the world that you created. May we seek to know you in the scriptures that you've given. And Father, may we ultimately seek to know you through Christ who came to make you known to us. Father, work in our midst through your spirit. May we take these truths and may they guide us throughout this week. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.